this is As Told by Sherelle, and this is your podcast for self-discovery and inspiration through storytelling. Each week, you will hear a new guest and hopefully walk away with something that helps enlighten your journey. I hope you enjoy. Thank you for joining me, and remember, stop chasing tiaras and be the crown. Chef Dadisi Olutosin talks about authenticity and connecting his history to every dish that he makes. You might get a little hungry after this one. The DC. Um, where did you find the passion for cooking? Um, you know, I would probably say it it started when I was a child, um, a young child. Um, you know, I come from a culture where men generally do not cook, men eat, <laughs> and the women cook. And uh, I, you know, happen to have been fortunate to be in the presence of a lot of great women who had um, tremendous culinary skills. They weren't seeking to be professional chefs or anything of that nature, but just techniques and skills were passed down from one generation to the next. And in my particular case, I was, I'm an only child. You know, my mother's position was, I'm going to teach you everything that you need to know uh, before you leave my home as a, as a young adult. And cooking was one of those things. She has a great passion for it. Um, a number of my aunts and my, 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 my favorite grandparent, one of my grandmothers, um, all of them, you know, took me in very early because not only am I an only child, I'm the oldest grandchild on each side of my family. So all the experimentation for rearing children came with me. <laughs> right, right. A lot of responsibilities. A lot of responsibilities, yes. So... Talk to me about your culture. I mean, explain to me where you're from and how that plays a factor in uh, the food that you make um, and the way you experience, you know, culinary arts. Um, well, you know, my culture is kind of uh, a dual culture. Uh, my mother's American. My father's Nigerian. Um, certain, And my mother's not only American, she's a Southern Belle. So she's from the Deep South. Her family's from South Carolina and the border cities in Georgia to South Carolina. So the culture there is far more South Carolinian than it is Georgia. Right. And um, just, you know, from a, from a kind of cultural, traditional perspective, um, especially in Nigeria, um, only very much so in very recent years has the notion of a man being a professional chef or cook mm-hmm. been seen as a positive. Right. <laughs> um, Traditionally, you know, roles play a, play, play a role. And unlike in the Western world where it seems to always become a, a point of contention as to gender roles, that's not the case in, in the majority of African nations. Um, gender roles are understood and respected by both sides. Right. Um, and so it's not looked at in a negative light, but it's always seen as, you know, the man's responsibility is to take care of the home front to go work, to bring, bring back, um, you know, whatever it takes to make sure that the family is, is whole financially, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, typically women are homekeepers. 
So they're raising the children. Um, they are responsible for, you know, uh, feeding, feeding the family and, and ensuring that the family is, uh, is nourished. And that's, that's a very positive thing because most of the times it's not simply cooking. It's the women who run the markets. Um, they're, they're the ones going and picking the fresh fish or the chicken or whatever protein of the day. They're picking all the fresh fruit and vegetables, grains, and bringing them home to cook. I, I would say certainly culturally I come from a background where uh, this whole movement today about farm to table and sustainable food, et cetera, well, I grew up with that and we didn't refer to it that way. It was just living. <laughs> right, right. My question to you is because you've chosen to embark on a career path that would typically be associated with um, female, you know, females in your culture, but it also has provided almost an outlet for men to pursue other careers that they wouldn't normally. Do you feel like it's affecting um, the conversations or changing the conversations about male roles in the um, in your household or in your family dynamic? Um, well, I, you know, I would certainly say in, in from a family standpoint, you know, the family is 2018. It, there's not a lot of attention given to that in the sense that I live in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and and even in Nigeria, um, if you live in big cities like Lagos or Abuja or Ibadan, um, and Nugu and some of the other cities where there's a constant stream of international presence as well, people traveling from other parts of the world and coming there. This thing seems to be very commonplace. There are culinary schools popping up all over Nigeria, people getting trained. I mean, still the majority of the people participating are women, mm-hmm. um, but it's not frowned upon per se that a man would seek to be a chef. Yeah. Um, I would say that more so than anything, uh, most people that I know who are actively um, serving as chefs and restaurateurs in Nigeria right now, they all were trained in the West. They were trained in Paris. They were trained in the U.S. They were trained somewhere other than Nigeria. And then they went back home. Um, Here in the U.S., per se, you know, it's passe at this point. Um, Actually, in the Western world, it's the complete opposite. In most restaurants, um, the gender roles are shift, shifted. Um, the majority of known and named chefs are white males. Right. And so even when I made the transition into this space, because I come from, this is the second career for me. I come from another industry mm-hmm. that I spent 27 years in. And um, when you talk about outlet, spending 27 years in the corporate world, which I did, kind of repressed my creative side right um did not allow for me to be as creative because we you know we had certain processes and procedures we had to follow to do our jobs um and for a long time i had been really contemplating how do i get back to a point where i can touch that aspect of who i am again and cooking became kind of this thing that said okay that's one way I can do it. Um, let me look at this. But, and I might be answering a future question with this comment, but I didn't actually become a chef to become a chef. 
um, I actually came into the restaurant industry to become a restaurateur. Mm-hmm. My, my goal and my goal still is, is has always been from a business perspective, owning multiple restaurants that cook various types of food um, with a global perspective on the cuisine. Mm-hmm. And when I first ventured into this space, I hadn't worked in a restaurant in over 30 years. Wow. So I had to go learn the industry again. Yeah. And that's what ended up ultimately causing me to become a chef is as I was learning the industry, you got to go in the kitchen, you got to work in the kitchen, right. you got to see what the dynamics are. And after doing that, um, gave me a certainly a much better perspective of what are the ins and outs within a restaurant from that aspect. And so that's, that's kind of where that story for me and my involvement um, stems from. Okay. So how did you take your business experience? How did you take that and use that as an asset as opposed to feeling like you were starting from square one? Right. Um, well, I, you know, I, I'd say, you know, I'm very plan oriented. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I put a, a five-year plan together initially when I came into the industry mm-hmm. with, with two arcs, a one-year arc, three-year arc, and then a five-year arc. And I said, well, you know, my milestones need to be in one year, where do I need to be? In three years, where do I need to be? In five years, where do I need to be? And, you know, as a part of that, you know, from my corporate background and, and, and training, um, I leveraged my understanding of how to set plans and goals and how to achieve them from a milestone standpoint, which is very different than just saying, okay, I'm going to go get a job and I'll just go to work every day and whatever happens, happens. Right. Um, I'm not that, I'm not built or wired that way. (laughs) So uh, I'm, I'm more of a, I really need to know what's going on as I'm embarking on it. And Mm -hmm. I need to have a plan that that's loose enough where I can adjust as I need to. Mm-hmm. So what happened with me in this is, you know, there was a plan. I fast-tracked it because a lot of people ask, oh, did you go to culinary school? I'm like, no, I'm not a young man. I don't have that kind of time. Yeah. Um, it, it, that's a time requirement. I already did college. I did college back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was more of what is the best way to learn? And when I talk to people that whose counsel I trusted, that were already in the industry, they say, you know what, the best thing for you to do is to go find a chef that'll let you train under him or her. Right. And I was fortunate. I, I apprenticed under a chef for a couple of years here in DC. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a classically French trained chef, worked all over the world, primarily in Europe. And then he came to the U S and worked. And um, it was, it was hard. I won't lie. Um, it certainly was humbling to come into the industry, I went from, let's just say that I went from making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to making $10 an hour in my first job. So certainly that was, but that was a a calculated risk on my part. I made a firm decision that I needed to make that sacrifice and do that. Um, But it was humbling. Um, you know, I was accustomed to working around people who all had, you know, you know, at a bare minimum college degree, master's degree, some PhDs, some of them with multiple masters. 
right. um, in a corporate environment where the majority of all of us were white, what we call white collar workers. Yeah. And to and to go from that to now I'm working with what I would like to call real people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, you know, the restaurant industry, everybody's welcome. Yeah. You know, it, regular folks, drug addicts, alcoholics, criminals, ex-cons, any and everything you can imagine, they work in the kitchens that feed people. And when you are coming into that environment, you really have to open your eyes and you have to really listen to people and what their concerns are and what their day-to-day lives are. Um, And it was different for me uh, for a long time, but I understood that I needed to understand it to work in the environment because if I'm going to own restaurants and, and employ people in this space at some point, I need to understand who I'm employing and what are the things that drive them. Um, And so that, you know, that's kind of my convoluted story about, you know, how I utilize my corporate experience as a manager of people, as well as a manager of process, because those are two different things. And it's a rarity that you find people who do both. Um, But with regards to the restaurant industry, uh, if you're working in the kitchen, you got to be a manager of people. Yeah. Um, if, if you're a chef, if you are, you know, a sous chef, executive sous chef, uh, chef de cuisine or, or an exec head chef or an executive chef, cause those are management roles. Right. And yeah, so that's, that helped me a lot. So your statement about people and working with real people really makes me think about how food service, um, you know, and experiencing food really caters to the needs of the individual who's enjoying that cuisine, right? Right. So how do you ensure, or what do you think about in that process of making food that people can connect to? Um, you know, that's a great question. You know, I would say that for me, it's always been about paying attention to what are the things that put smiles on people's faces when they're eating, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'll answer the question this way. You know, D.C. is an interesting market mm-hmm. for restaurants. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a city that has a large population of millennials who majority of them are college educated, working white collar jobs. A lot of them, mm-hmm. um, a lot of them are not parents, not married. So they have a lot of disposable income mm-hmm. and a lot of them eat out a lot. Yes. So, right. Um, and are self-proclaimed foodies and are, you know, whatever the high level of Yelpers are, they're all of that. Mm-hmm. And that lends itself to what the dining experience in D.C. is, depending on the type of restaurant you go to. So the one thing that I notice is that people can be very picky when it comes to food. When they go into restaurants, they want it their way. My perspective as a chef and as a future restaurant owner is we've got to change that perspective a little bit. Um, When you as a diner go into a restaurant, you are a guest. Mm-hmm. It's like coming into someone's home. Mm-hmm. You are a guest. You don't dictate to someone in their home how they should cook your food. 
you ask them what do they have and uh, you know and then you graciously accept it you may say I, I don't eat that but I'll take everything else and when I look at how people eat when you when you strip past the oh my friends are all gluten-free so I'm going to be gluten-free today <laughs> or the you know, it's meatless Monday. So today I'm going to pretend I'm a vegetarian or a vegan. Mm -hmm. When you strip past all of that, the thing that I, that I know about all people is that when you have food that brings back childhood memories that are positive, mm -hmm. that's what makes the food enjoyable to you. Right. Because it's tied to something. Like, like for me, my favorite grandparent I talked about before, my grandmother, who... Tomorrow um, is the second anniversary of her transition. Mm -hmm. And when I think about my childhood with her, there were certain foods that she made that my mom would get upset when I told her, I said, well, grandma makes it better than you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. now, now, mind you, my mom can cook. Don't get me wrong. But right. I'm like, there are certain things you do very well, but there are certain things my grandmother does better. Mm -hmm. And... <laughs> And, and so in that, um, when I think about certain foods, they bring back childhood memories that are fond to me. And I think that same experience exists for other people. Sort of like, let's just say if, you, if you're eating American cuisine and specifically if you're eating um, either Southern cuisine or soul food, they are the same, but they're not, right? Mm -hmm. But there are certain key things like potato salad. Right mac and cheese. People make a big deal about who makes the best mac and cheese or the best potato salad. Those things are important if you're talking about desserts, depending on where you're from. Like, I am an advocate of sweet potato pie. Okay. And, yes. people, and, <laughs> and people who follow me online, they know I am. Yeah. I am, I am not an advocate for pumpkin pie at all. Oh. Um, not my thing. Mm -hmm. But it also depends on where in the South you're from. Right. Um, people who are in the South, but closer to the North, pumpkin pie is a thing. Mm -hmm. In the deep, in the deep South, pumpkin pie is a thing with white Southerners. Right. Sweet potato pie is a thing with black Southerners. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And, but, you know, red velvet cake, um, coconut cake, you know, when my grandmother made coconut cake, it was a sour cream coconut cake. So when I, when, yeah, so when I, when I think about those types of desserts, and, and I was a little fat, chubby kid who, when I went to visit people, I didn't care about the rest of their food. I wanted the desserts. Right, right. <laughs> so when I think about the experience of eating, for me, it's like, am I eating something that brings back this memory? Yeah. And makes me smile inside, right? So I think to, the, to that point, given that D.C. is a is a very transient city. You have people from all over the world and all over the United States who come here to work, yep. come here to study in college and university, um, or just are passing through, right? Mm -hmm. They're always looking for something that reconnects them mm -hmm. to their home. Mm -hmm. You know, to, to one person, what may be good may not be good to another person because it may be because of where they're from. Some people like more spice in their food than others. You know, perfect example of that. Um, don't ever tell a person from New Orleans that you're making gumbo if you're not from New Orleans. 
Um, never, never tell them that you're making um, crawfish etouffee or shrimp etouffee if you're not from there or you're making beignets if you're not from there and you really have a palate for it, right? Right. You might have made a great soup that you put over rice mm-hmm. and they might tell you, you know, in their, in their way of saying, that's a very nice soup, it's really good, but that ain't gumbo. Right, right. <laughs> so you got, you know, and, and in the same way that they are very specific about their food, a person from Italy would be the same thing when they're looking at Italian-American food. They'll tell you that's not Italian food, it's Italian-American food. Or a person from France, if you say you're opening up a French bistro, where there are certain dishes that have to be a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, by comparison, if you compare Creole cuisine from Louisiana to rustic French cuisine from France, mm-hmm. they're night and day in their in their spice level profiles. The French don't the French don't use a lot of spices; they use a lot of herbs and fresh produce. Mm-hmm. Whereas Creoles, they use a lot of spice. Some of it very hot. Some of it's just spicy spice, right? Mm -hmm. So I think either way it goes, you ultimately are looking for, as a a chef, as a potential restaurateur, you want people to enjoy your food and bring back food memories for them, fond memories of that iconic dish that you say you're making. Mm -hmm. It better taste right. And it better bring back, you know, like, I use this one last example. I love cornbread, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But I grew up with savory cornbread. And I know that there are people who like sweet cornbread. Mm-hmm. Personally, I can't stand sweet cor- cornbread. <laughs> um, cornbread should be savory. It's like putting sugar in your grits. No, like not never. Right. Um, right. Cornbread should be not only savory, it should be made with buttermilk. Mm. And And so for me, the contrast of eating buttermilk cornbread mm-hmm. with collard greens that have been cooked in the right amount of vinegar mm-hmm. is very different than the contrast of eating like a Jiffy brand cornbread mm-hmm. that's sweet with your collards. They don't, they won't taste the same. Right. You know? And so for me, again, you touch people by bringing back memories of fondness around food. And we all, all of us, regardless of race, religion, creed, you know, sexual orientation, whatever it may be, we all have those. And food brings people together. Right. You can get you can get past talking about a lot of things when you put food in front of people. I agree. Yeah. As we continue to, in some ways, share our personal stories our history, our culture, our traditions, as we continue to share that through food, Mm -hmm. how would you like to see the industry evolve in the future? Mm. Well, you know, I'm going to speak specifically to black male and female chefs, and I'll say black and brown. Mm -hmm. Um, White chefs in general, they cook what they want. And they get awarded for it, right? They right. want to cook French. They want to do Italian. They want to do Spanish. They want to do Latin American food. Even if they try, you know, they want to do Caribbean or even uh, Southern cuisine. They 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 are typically lauded, um, you know, get James Beard Award, Michelin stars, all of that for cooking their food. Mm-hmm. What I'd like to see black and brown chefs do is cook their food. 
mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, if you're a Black American, all Black Americans who are chefs don't cook soul food. So, you know, we need to erase that, that mythology that if you're Black, the only thing you know how to cook is soul food. Mm-hmm. It's BS, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I know plenty of Black chefs right here in D.C. who can cook Italian food like, like they were born and raised in Italy. Right. Who can who can do French cuisine and Spanish cuisine from bistro casual to fine dining tasting menus and 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 these these people are are highly skilled chefs whose names you may have never heard right. um, because one they're working they're not seeking Instagram fame they're not <laughs> they're not <laughs> right. they're, they're not on the television shows trying to be you know top chef or any of that they're just in the industry working and doing their thing. But the reason why you don't know about them because they don't own restaurants. They don't have a marquee that allows for them to highlight what they do. Right. And same thing with brown chefs. You know, you go to some of the high-end um, kind of Latin American restaurants that are here in the area, mm-hmm. and many of the head chefs are not Latino, right. which is which is odd as hell to me. Um, so my thing is, is cook your culture. Mm-hmm cook your culture and be able to cook it at whatever level you want to cook it. If you want it to just be simply casual where people just come in, get a nice cheap meal and eat and leave fine. Cook it in the middle where it may be, it be a little bit more upscale. You want to do it fast, casual. However, if you want to do it fine dining, mm-hmm. like for instance, there's not one fine dining soul food restaurant in DC. Yeah, it's true. DC is supposed to be still chocolate city. Mm-hmm. But ain't a lot of chocolate with the food. That's true. If you want to get, I suppose, good soul food mm-hmm. or even southern cuisine in the area, you got to go into Maryland. Right. Or you got to go into deep Virginia, mm-hmm. going toward Richmond mm-hmm. before you get it. And so to me, I want to see these, 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 these black and brown chefs, male and female, start thinking about the business of the restaurant industry and start looking at how can I cook my food where it appeals to more than just black folks or just brown folks? Mm-hmm. How can I make my food appeal to a variety of people who are going to enjoy the authenticity of what it is I cook? Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much it. Okay, so how do you balance that? Um I love this idea of elevating the culinary experience using an authentic, um, you know, as your, your authenticity, you know, mm-hmm. using that as your, your base, but elevating that so that it reaches a broader audience. But how do you actually do that? How do you make sure that um, you're not sacrificing one thing for the other? So you don't, the idea of having to choose your craft over your culture? How do you make sure you can balance those two? Um, I, you know, I would say you got to go into everything with a plan, with the right plan. So the balance has to come from your business acumen. Mm-hmm. If you understand market trends, and I'm, I'm going to speak real corporate right now. All right. if, you, if you understand market trends and you understand who your demographics are, Going before you before you ever spend a dime, spend the dime on the research required before you open a restaurant. Right. Unfortunately, the habit 
tends to be, oh, everybody loves my food. I can cook. I'm going to just go open a restaurant. Right. So you, you have not done the business things. You have not done any market research. You haven't checked any trends. You haven't done like pop-ups to mm-hmm. test out recipes with people, to get feedback early on with the actual product to see what people will really embrace, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you haven't really looked at what your real competition is because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what kind of food you're cooking. If you're opening a restaurant around other restaurants, they're all your competitors. Right. Because they're all vying for the same customers you're vying for. Yeah, true. You know, e- even if you take a, a good vegetarian or vegan restaurant, do you know what makes those places really, um, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? What makes them successful? It's not their vegetarian and vegan customers. It's when they can get meat eaters to come in there and eat. Right. That's what makes them successful because then they know they have a product. When you can get a meat eater to stop eating meat because they enjoyed a meal they had at a vegan or a vegetarian restaurant, that's a win. Right. Because you already know your vegan and vegetarian customers are going to come. But now you just brought in a whole nother revenue stream. So you got to look at it the same way with any other kind of restaurant you open. What are the multiple revenue streams I can get by opening this restaurant? Other than just cooking and putting food on a plate. Mm -hmm. Am I packaging a product? Am I doing any catering? Um, Am I doing, you know, one-offs here and there? Are we closing down for a day a week and offering that for private events? That's the business conversation, right? You got to have around what are you doing? So from a balancing standpoint, you got to look at the business, but then you also have to stay true to what it is you're cooking. And so in today's day and time, now certain soul food and Southern dishes, you can't cook completely authentically in a restaurant because you can't use the same products that your great grandparents and grandparents use. Nobody uses animal lard anymore. Right. I, I personally love it because that's how pie crusts were made and all of that back in the day. Mm-hmm. But nobody does it because we we learned over time the health benefits weren't there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, clogged arteries is not a good thing. Right. So we found other ways, and that's why these foods don't necessarily taste the same. Right. Um, but what I'd say is that instead of saying you're doing something completely authentic, buy into the concept of doing fusion cuisine right. or inspired cuisine. So you say it's, you know, we make Southern inspired. Mm-hmm which gives you room to play with the food Mm -hmm. um, versus saying we do Nashville hot fried chicken. Okay. Now you just completely limited yourself. And then people who've been to to Nashville and been to Prince's and other places to eat, they're expecting that when they see your hot fried chicken, you know? So hopefully that makes sense in terms of how I answered that. It's, it's, you you got to look at both sides, but you got to seriously think about that business piece because ultimately it comes down to how do you keep your doors open? I'll add one other thing, though. The biggest danger I see with restaurants in D.C. as a whole is what we call in the corporate world boiling the ocean. Mm-hmm. It's when you're trying to be all things to all people. Right. You cannot. That will kill the quality of your product. Because you never, if you think about it, if you do that, you never have a focus on getting those dishes right because you're trying to appease everybody. That's why now when you go into restaurants, everything has 
a V by it or, or VG or a, a, a GF. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, you know what? Last time I checked, potatoes never had gluten in them. Mm-hmm. So why do I need to put on my menu gluten-free by potatoes? Right. But you do now because of the audience. Right. And the way I look at it is, you know, you can you can figure out the best way to market your your menu, but if you try to do everything for every single person, that is a recipe for business disaster because you can't make you can't sustain that. True. But if you say we do southern inspired cuisine, we cook pork, we put pork in our collard greens, we use lard for our crusts. I mean, if you say those things. Now you've educated people before they ever buy your food. And then now they have the decision whether or not they want to eat there. Right. You have experienced a variety of diverse customers and Mm -hmm. you've gone through a series of working through your craft to figure out who you are at your core and project that in every dish that you make. So what dish best represents you and your story and your culinary experience. Ooh, that's a tough one. <laughs> and the reason why it's a tough one because I, 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 I like people ask me all the time, "What's your signature dish?" I'm like, I don't have one. Mm-hmm. Um, everything depends on what, um, what. Um, everything depends on what cuisine I'm cooking. Right. So, if I'm cooking a certain type of cuisine then then there's a certain dish from that particular cuisine that I like the most. Mm-hmm. So I would probably say if I'm doing American cuisine, I only cook Southern foods. I cook New Orleans Creole and I do um, Low Country, Charleston Low Country, because they have similarities. And in saying that, um, I would say it's one of those things where... Um, Gosh, it's just tough. You know what? I, I'm gonna I'm gonna make it simple, but it's not simple because it's not a dish that I like cooking for everybody because I think it's been overdone in restaurants and it's not done right. But um, New Orleans style or Creole style shrimp and grits, mm-hmm. which is different from Charleston shrimp and grits, um, they 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 are not the same, right? What makes them so different? Um, is is how they how they're prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, low country shrimp and grits is a far simpler dish. Um, it is it is it is the common man's food, right? It's you know it's grits, it's sautéed fresh shrimp out of the water, a uh, little cornstarch, salt and pepper to make a sauce, and that's it. And you pour that onions and you pour that over the grits. Mm-hmm. Whereas Creole cuisine, which a lot of people know very little about outside of Louisiana, mm-hmm. and because um, they call everything that comes out of Louisiana Creole, I mean, I'm Cajun, which is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, Creole cuisine actually is high-end cuisine. So when you're, when you're making a Creole-style shrimp and grits, it has typically either tasso or andouille sausage in it, mm-hmm. which are pork products. Mm-hmm. Um, you have Gulf shrimp that you're using, which have a different flavor profile than the shrimp that come out of the Atlantic. 
And then you also have um, other things in terms of the type of sauce that you'll put on there, whether it's a tomato-based sauce or a, a brown kind of gravy-based sauce, or you're just making a jus mm-hmm. from how you saute the shrimp. And I hope I'm not making you too hungry over there. Right. Um, I was watering. <laughs> but but if you if you get my point, and I know you've been out to my Instagram where I've posted photos of the Creole version, mm-hmm. um, it is an extremely high-end dish with a lot more ingredients. And therefore, from a restaurant standpoint, it's going to cost you more. Right. But I've been in, but I've been in restaurants in DC where they're charging anywhere from sixteen on the low end to twenty two dollars for shrimp and grits, mm-hmm. and the people who are cooking those shrimp and grits don't know what they're doing because mm-hmm. it's because they're cooking food that's not a part of their culture. Mm-hmm. They work in kitchens that don't require them to taste the food before they send it out, and um, they don't have a palate for it if that makes sense to you, right? It's sort of like going back to my statement about people from New Orleans. They have they grew up with a palate for gumbo, so they know it. Right. They don't have to think about it. Right. And so if you make something that you might have all the ingredients in it, but you didn't do your roux right, you didn't cook it long enough um, to where it gives the right flavor profile. And, and I'd even throw in um, I posted something about this on social media last night. I went to Baltimore to eat at a friend's restaurant. And I said, the world is changing. This is a, this is a, a high-end soul food restaurant that's, that's serving um, a very popular dish in West Africa called jollof rice. Mm-hmm. So their rice dish for the restaurant as one of their sides is jollof. Right. And I said, Wow. That's a, that's a big deal yeah, it is. that that black Americans are embracing jollof rice, which is a West African dish. Yep. And then he also has a use of what he calls Liberian greens. Mm-hmm. So Liberian greens, they use something called uh, a potato green, mm-hmm. um, potato leaf, which has a different texture than, say, collard greens. Right. It's softer. Okay. It's closer to closer to spinach. Okay. And instead of him cooking collards, that's what he's using at his restaurant. And I was I was highly inspired and impressed by that because I said that's that's like coming back home, you know, to see this very intentional reconnection with West Africa mm-hmm. brought a smile to my face. Nice. And and he did it through food without making it a big statement. Right. Right. So, yeah, that's my my long winded answer to your question. (laughs) Thank you. I love the fact that, you know, talking to you helps me to understand that food, just like all the other aspects of our lives, really talks to the individual and tells you about, you know, who we are. The food we create really does tell you, gives you a little piece of who I am whether I realize it or not, you know? So I love that you helped to verbalize that and help me to understand that because, you know, for a long time, you go to your family's Sunday dinner, you eat your fried chicken, your collard greens, and you don't really understand that there is a history behind it. Yeah. So it it helps me to have an appreciation for, you know, my culture, um, if anything. Um, Oh, no. No, for sure. Uh, I understand that completely. 
Yeah. So um, before I end this conversation, I just want to know where can people find you? How can we connect to you and um, kind of track what you're doing in the culinary world? Okay. Well, the, the first place would probably be social media. Um, my primary social media platform is Instagram, um, just because of the visual nature of what I do. And that's a, that's a platform that people, so people can find me uh, by searching my name, um, Dadisio Utosin, and I'll pop up. I'm the only one on there, so they'll find me. Um, I am on Facebook, but I'm on Facebook kind of as I'm on Facebook. I'm, I don't really actively engage on Facebook, but everything that I post on Instagram is posted on my page on Facebook as well. And you can find me there the same way, um, Dadisio Utosin. Um, as far as cooking in the city, my day job, um, unfortunately, is not open to the public. Um, I, I run a kitchen in a large government facility. Um, so unless you work in that building, um, you can't come to my, my cafeteria. Um, but what I am in the process of doing is putting together a platform for doing pop-ups again. I used to do pop-ups a lot, and I'm going to start doing them again, hopefully um, in August. Um, it's going to be something small and intimate, um, no more than 16 seats. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be a, um, chef's choice, prefix menu, um, multiple courses and wine pairing. Nice. Yeah. So there'll, there'll be more information to come out about that in the weeks to come. Um, but yeah, that's what I'm working on. So that'll be, that'll be a very, um, direct way that people will be able to access my food. Cool. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, it's really a blessing to talk to someone who doesn't just create, but also is very knowledgeable and purposeful in the creation of what they do. So thank you for sharing your experience. Thank you very much. And, I, and I'm, I'm honored that you reached out to me to do this podcast for you. Thank, thank you. you. All right. One. Cheers. Thank you for listening to As Told by Sherelle. For more weekly stories, please subscribe to my podcast.